it's important to connect the dots between environmental pollution and one's health. And if we take care of Mother Earth, Mother Earth will take care of us. You're listening to Cooler Earth, a podcast of Climate Exchange. Your weekly dive into energy transitions, sustainability, environmental politics, and all things climate change. Each week, we feature special guests and in-depth discussions with your hosts, Maria Eugenia Olano and Amanda Griffiths. So it really sounds almost cliche at this point to say that we have never been as divided as we are today here in the United States. But for all intents and purposes, that is really true. Over the past two years, the rhetoric coming out of the White House and the opposition, for that matter, have left us here, seemingly unable to find common ground with those in the party other than our own. On matters of immigration, civil rights, women's equality, sexual assault, and unfortunately, climate change, the public opinion and policy are drifting further and further apart. The environment has tended to be eclipsed in the elections by hot topic issues such as healthcare, civil rights, the economy, and gun control. However, with the White House spending the past two years unashamedly embarked in an effort to roll back environmental protections and deny science its place in policymaking, these midterms are turning out to be a very different story. As climate impacts become worse, more apparent, and much more widespread, people from across the political spectrum now care more about climate change. In North Carolina, a state pummeled by two hurricanes in two years, there's been a discernible shift among Republican voters in matters related to climate change. Right. So where do we stand right now? It's Thursday, November 8th, and we're two days after the 2018 midterm elections. House Democrats can now set the agenda in the chamber as they have taken back the House of Representatives. And what does that mean for the environment and for topics of clean energy? So we might see more investigations into ethics allegations surrounding the administration. We also might see if Nancy Pelosi becomes House Speaker, she might plan to reconstitute some version of the Select Committee on Global Warming, which was created when Democrats won the House in 2006, which was subsequently repealed when Republicans regained power in 2010. Right. And while all of these would be great developments for the fight against climate change, there are some potential issues. And in my opinion, one of the biggest ones is if the Democrats really want to focus on the Trump administration and kind of repealing and fighting back on the Trump administration rather than prioritizing legislative packages on carbon pricing and clean energy, which really is a possibility. And it would be losing out on a great opportunity that they potentially have uh, Mm -hmm. into passing concrete legislation. It's definitely a different landscape than we saw in the late 2000s when Democrats had unified control of Washington. Mm -hmm. Because right now, with just having control of the House, we do have limited power in terms of what can happen on clean energy and climate policy. And in other news, other things that happened this Tuesday, the oil industry had a big win in some ballot initiatives across the country. So, for instance, Colorado's proposal that would have banned a new drilling in many parts of the state did not pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, same as Washington State's proposal to set a carbon fee on on carbon pollution. And in Arizona, a proposal that would have increased the state's requirement for renewable energy electricity to 50% by 2030, up to the current 15% by 2025. So those were losses for the Mm -hmm. clean energy agenda, and it 
ha- so happens that the utility and energy companies actually spent nearly $100 million fighting these proposals in the lead up to the election. But we did see two big energy-related ballot initiatives that did pass. So there was a ballot initiative in Nevada, which did not face much opposition, but it did pass increasing renewable energy requirements for the state. And there was a ballot initiative in Florida that bans offshore drilling in state waters, which passed as well. So those are two wins for climate-related policies that we did see. And the most exciting, I think, in our opinion, (laughs) development of Tuesday was with the record number of women winning Mm -hmm. uh, seats in Congress. At least 92 women won seats in the House and 10 in the Senate. It is, correct me if I'm wrong, the largest win for women ever. It um, is. In an election day. And it's also, we now have a record number of total seats held by women in Congress. So that's 122 women in the legislature versus the previous record, which was 107. And that includes Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts, and she's okay. also the first black woman to represent Massachusetts in Congress. So, big day. Right. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez became one of two women who will become the youngest to serve in the legislature. She actually also has the only climate plan that matches scientific recommendations and consensus on what needs to happen to avoid worst-case climate scenarios. Her proposals have been called radical and have been widely criticized, but also, on the other side, have been heralded as the kind of energy we really need to be moving climate legislation forward. She has a very comprehensive plan uh, to move the U.S. economy towards 100% renewable energy very soon. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be very exciting to see her coming to Washington and everything that she will hopefully be able to achieve for the Democrats. So midterm elections are usually deemed a referendum on the presidency and a measure of the state of the country overall, two years into a presidential term. So for the podcast, we wanted to speak with somebody who knows a lot about the topic and has had firsthand experience with many of the issues we care deeply about today. She also happens to be the first woman elected into higher office in her state and a proud Republican. So the following conversation, we sat down with Claudine Schneider. She ran for Congress and her work on climate change has heralded a climate champion. After leaving Congress, she has held seats on nonprofit boards on climate change, and she has also been a champion for women's rights and women's equity. So we chatted with her on everything from politics to climate change to women in the legislature, and it was a brilliant conversation. Definitely a great way to start off our season two of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, hi. Hi. <laughs> hi. Hi, everybody. How are all of you? How are you? Good. How are you? Um, excellent. Thanks. Cool. Great. So we'll start. Climate change has become such a big part of your career during your time in Congress and, and after your time in office. But coming back to when you first were running for office, was climate change one of your motivating factors or was that something you found once you were in the legislature? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, I'm laughing, but I think I'll go back a little further in my life as to how I moved into the environmental arena. And that was, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where my job as a little girl was to dust the house every day (laughs) and we had coal plants right near uh in our town 
Well, sometime later, when I finally went off to school and realized, wow, the sun shines pretty frequently here in Philadelphia. I moved from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia and then elsewhere, but it was an eye-opener to realize that those dark skies and the dust that I cleaned every day was really detrimental to one's health. And then, in not too long a while, my father developed lung cancer, from which he eventually died, even though he was a non-smoker. Our neighbors started dying of lung cancer and other forms of cancer. Ultimately, when I was 25 years old, I developed cancer of the lymph system, and it became real clear to me that it's important to connect the dots between environmental pollution and one's health. And if we take care of Mother Earth, Mother Earth will take care of us. So, I really understood that whatever energy we invest in and advocate for is critical to the health of the environment, to the health of the individual. So, when I moved to Rhode Island and they wanted to build a nuclear power plant down the way, I thought, well, let's look into this. And my engagement in stopping that nuke plant and organizing a non-profit was that it wasn't on health basis, it was more on justice. That the local town, the state, the governor had all been bought off by the utility, and they hadn't told the citizens of the state that they were going to do this. So, long story short, we killed the nuclear power plant. It took us two years and a number of lawsuits, but we succeeded in stopping a plant that already was well along the way of licensing by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And then I thought, it's frustrating to fight against something. I'd rather advocate for something. So, we started looking at other forms of energy, and it became very clear that energy efficiency was the least cost investment that any homeowner, business, or government could make. Because, basically, it adheres to a penny saved is a penny earned. And so, when I got into Congress in 1980, I wanted to be part of an energy-related committee because I understood that our whole economy revolves around energy and production from energy. So, I was not aware of climate change until the 1980s when I was on the Science Research and Technology Committee. And I listened to scientists year after year tell us, we think this is a serious problem and this is the trend and our planet is getting warmer. And I thought, I have a responsibility. Even if they are wrong, we need an insurance policy, so we should be taking an energy efficiency and renewable energy path. And so, it was during the 80s that I started advocating and defending investments in research for renewable energy. And then, later in the 80s is when I introduced the Global Warming Prevention Act, essentially a comprehensive roadmap as to how we could prevent climate change. Wow. 
Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for sharing that story. That's that's really fascinating. Um, your work, yeah, it's very impressive. Yeah. And you probably heard that essentially the president is dismantling um, Mm -hmm. President Obama's initiative for the Clean Power Plan, suggesting that now states take the lead on coal emissions. Well. I can't help but think that the majority of states are not going to advocate for coal despite the president's uh, reversal mm-hmm. because people are learning more and we do need to do more of a public education campaign and we do need to talk about the cost benefits mm-hmm. and we do need to incorporate discussions of health impacts. Right. and. Thirdly, we need to emphasize the job creation because there are many more jobs created in energy efficiency and renewables than there are in coal. So, so in that political climate and how we find ourselves today, how do you see that be different than the decade where you were in Washington, D.C., serving as a U.S. representative? Did you, I mean, the science was coming out there, and it's actually interesting. I don't know if you read the New York Times magazine piece on losing Earth uh, that was specifically focused on that exact decade when you were a representative in going through kind of the history of the science of climate change and how the science was just coming out then with these impacts on health reports and the consequences of CO2 in the atmosphere. So how do you think things were received back then? And how do you contrast that with the political climate today where we seem to have all the science and yet somehow that's not being really translated into policy or it's actually actively being denied uh, by the political leaders of today? Well, I think we have to distinguish which political leaders. So (laughs) back in the 1980s, when we were beginning to have the science become more public, and I had some of the best and the brightest, many of the people who were mentioned in that article, in an effort to design a pathway forward. And interestingly enough, I, as a Republican, had 140 co-sponsors of my bill, and they were both Democrats and Republicans. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what has happened between 1980 and now? Well, back then, the fossil fuel industry did not feel threatened, but the minute that they started seeing the momentum growing from that point forward, they started a campaign, much like the cigarette industry began their campaign, to deny science. And Exxon has even admitted that. And what happened was, when people ask me today, how is it that Republicans can deny science and deny that climate change is real, there is only one very simple answer. And that is money. Mm. It's all about greed. It's all about self-interest. If you connect the dots between those members of Congress who deny climate change and the campaign contributions they're receiving, 
if you can identify the source, because since the 80s till now, the amount of dark money, which means the lack of transparency from contributors, has increased. So I am also part of an organization of former members of Congress working hard to push for campaign finance reform and greater transparency in contributions. But clearly, those members, both of Congress, but also many governors, benefit from campaign contributions from the fossil fuel industry. In other words, they're bought off, they're tools of the industry, and they are not acting in the public interest. And I wonder, maybe it's a chicken and egg kind of situation too, but I wonder how much current elected officials hear from their constituents about climate change and whether their constituents are saying they don't believe in it or it shouldn't be a priority, or maybe if for some legislators it's just not seen as a top priority and there's so many other things in their district that they do deem that priority and they can directly connect to their constituents. Do you have any thoughts on how to move climate change from being the divisive and topic it is today into being more bipartisan and more of a priority? I think that there are basically two approaches. One, to talk about the problem, and two, to talk about the solutions when you're presenting it to members of Congress in particular or other elected officials. Mm -hmm. Constituents need to be well-armed about specific impacts that are going on in their own state. And there are plenty of organizations that are collecting that data. For example, I'm in Colorado and I moved out here in order to be close to the National Renewable Energy Lab, close to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and also the National Center for Atmospheric Research. So we're at a particular advantage, but just this morning they're talking about how the trout fishermen and the trout businesses are having a difficult time because of low, low flow in the streams. Whitewater rafters are, who run those businesses are also having difficult businesses, mm-hmm. business experiences. When the ski season begins, we don't know whether we'll have good snowfall or not, but we've had some pretty bad years where there's insufficient snowfall. So if one talks about the drought and how it's impacting the farmers in in your district or in your state, and you talk about the forest fires and how the polluted air from the smoke is impacting or whatever it might be, um, that's very important to articulate the specific impacts that you are already witnessing within your state. Then secondly, to be well armed with the options um, and to advocate for first, energy efficiency, which means changing some of the building codes or having some of the businesses and corporations model leadership by building net zero energy facilities or lead certified facilities and getting some some education and, and PR about those kinds of investments. 
and to point out to the media and urge the media to communicate more about the cost benefits of wind or solar in a particular state. So it means doing your homework and focusing on both the problem and the solutions and always providing the economic and job benefits and health benefits of transitioning to clean energy. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And just since the time when you started working on these issues until now, could you share a little bit of what you feel is the greatest accomplishment that we have made to battle climate change? And then what is perhaps the biggest setback that we have had so far? I think the greatest accomplishment is primarily in the business community because once they learned that there was money in it for them, saving money, they really moved pretty quickly because business is all about competition. And if if they see (laughs) their competitor having a a more robust bottom line, they're more inclined to follow along that path. Or if they read the the polling trends that indicate consumers are more interested in supporting socially responsible investments and or companies, business will continue to move in that direction. So I would say the greatest accomplishment has been done by many of the corporations who are saving, in many cases, you know, not just millions, but billions now of dollars since they first started on this path. Mm-hmm. And the greatest detriment at this point is number one, the lack of coverage by the part of the media. And I really want to emphasize that grassroots organizations, individuals need to pressure the media to cover not just the forest fires, but some of the new installations that have been taking place. Um, I signed up for wind power when they first offered it in Colorado. And and so I had to basically subsidize wind power by about $6 a month. To me, I thought it was worth it. Well, now my um, investment there has been cut in half. So we're moving in the right direction, but, you know, moving toward cheaper energy can happen much more quickly Mm -hmm. as we invest more in renewable energies. I have many friends who have solar on their homes, and they are getting a check back from the utility. So these are the kinds of stories that I feel that the media needs to cover. So they are an obstacle at this time because they are the conduit to the general public and to the policymakers to understand this issue. And then the other detriment is that every individual needs to be better informed. And it's so easy to become informed about climate change. There are so many nonprofits that provide this kind of data. And once an individual is well-informed, they can better articulate to their policymakers what direction, what changes they want to see. 
And there's a topic I want to go back to because before I joined Climate Exchange, I worked for the Massachusetts legislature as a staffer. And so I'm interested in hearing about what your experience was being a woman in Congress in the 1980s and and your experience in the political realm. When I first ran, it was not a matter of the party coming to me and saying, we want you to run. Mm -hmm. It was more a matter of, well, we don't have anybody from our party running for Congress. Maybe you'll be our sacrificial lamb. (laughs) So (laughs) it was more a matter of, oh, yes, let's use the woman. (laughs) Um, So the huge difference today is, happily, we are seeing more women gain the self-confidence that is necessary to run for public office. Mm -hmm. And I am part of Rutgers University's Center for American Women in Politics, and their research shows that a woman ordinarily has to be asked three times before she decides to run for public office. Mm -hmm. And that has been the case for decades now, especially since I first ran in the 80s. And I reflected and realized, yes, I was told three times that I should run before Hmm. I decided to do so. But today, thanks to the Me Too movement and women speaking up, and some of the other movements for economic equity and equal pay, and now the challenges with what we are perhaps facing in so far as the government telling us what we can and cannot do with our bodies, Mm -hmm. uh, it is more important than ever that women be running for public office. And so today we do have more more women running from the state legislature all the way up through the Senate for office. And this is a good thing because women think differently than men and we have a different modus operandi. Uh, But I will tell you in the 1980s when I was a congresswoman, I was treated with enormous respect just like my colleagues. We were all equal at that time. And I recall a colleague saying to me, you know, I have enormous respect for you, Claudine, because I know that you had to work twice as hard. You had to shake many Mm -hmm. hands and raise as much money, if not more, than I did. So it was quite an accomplishment for you to be here with us. And as a result, when I would open my mouth to speak happily, you know, men were interested in hearing what I had to say. So there was not that kind of sexism, shall we say, that we we see today. But it doesn't help given who's in the White House because much of that behavior has been modeled and we have to change that. Right. And I think that it is interesting to hear, and I've heard it from, from local women in politics as well, that they just never imagined themselves being in political office. It wasn't something that they ever thought of, which goes back to the having to be asked three times. And now, too, looking at millennials kind of coming into running for office and, and our generation kind of coming of age in that respect. In Massachusetts, I mostly see male millennials coming into 
running for office and we're starting to see some of them being elected and in the Massachusetts legislature. And I just wonder, do you have advice for millennial women who might be facing that that same problem of not envisioning themselves in office and not feeling like they have enough experience or or not having the right perspective to be in political office? Do you have advice particularly for millennial women coming into political office? Yes. Millennial women and all women have to understand that we think as Americans we are advanced. But let us remember that as we look to developing countries, it wasn't that long ago that women were considered less than their men. Well, that is not the case. Women have been shown that they can outrun the men in races, that they can serve as CEOs in corporations, and that they can run for the United States presidency. So it's a matter of women looking in the mirror and millennials realizing you're either part of the solution or part of the problem and understanding the value that we bring to government. And that is no man has walked in our shoes when it comes to taking care of future generations, taking care of children, taking care of the planet. We have a natural nurturing instinct. In addition to that, women have a tendency to think more about the future and look at the ramifications of decisions for the future. And this is something we need to do more with our legislation. In addition to that, women by their very nature are collaborators. We build coalitions, we talk to one another, we cooperate. It's not about being the king of the hill, it's more (laughs) about figuring out what's in the best interest of all of us. So there is a little bit of, I have a little bit of bias towards more women in Congress because these are the things that I have seen that we bring forward when we are in positions of the government. Mm -hmm. And let's be realistic. As a representative, our responsibility is to act in the public interest, not the private interest, as the Congress is doing today, but in the public interest. What's good for all of us? And so that's why I think millennial women understand that, because they have been at the forefront fighting for equality for, for gays and lesbians in pushing for environmental protection and just basically fighting for equality. And this is what we need in the U.S. Congress today and in public office throughout the country. Wow. Yeah, that was, that was great. <laughs> and we couldn't agree more. The sentiment of everything that you well said. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time and for your inspiration, for your career and everything that you've done. And now for serving on our board as well. Well, you're very welcome. And I always feel I cannot rest on my world. We must move on to the next big thing. So and climate is it, so we must continue to do everything we can, and especially to pressure the media to cover this issue more and to become well-informed 
before you go to do that. So this isn't about emotions. This is about the facts. And we need now only look around us to see that the impacts of climate change are here and now, sadly. But we need to move very, very quickly to help mitigate the situation. So thank you. And thank you for working with the Climate Exchange and Upward and Onward. Yeah, definitely. So Maria, do you remember that time that we (laughs) drove in a Tesla? It was amazing. (laughs) Honestly, it's one of those things where we've heard how amazing Teslas are, but you never really understand it fully until you are in it and like actually riding inside. Yeah, it's like you're driving in a spaceship. Literally. (laughs) Like these really crystal clear screens and you just touch them and decide what you want to listen to. And then you look up and there's no ceiling. Everything is so sleek. It's, yeah. No lines. It's amazing. No edges. No edges. No edges. No buttons. There's actually only one button. Everything else is controlled by a massive screen. Which, by the way, did you know they came up with before the iPad was even a thing? No way. Yeah? Huh. Trendsetters. Tesla's amazing. On that note, (laughs) we are actually in the middle of our biggest fundraiser yet. And we're giving away three brand new Teslas. Right. We decide for our third annual raffle, three Teslas is very fitting true and the winner gets their choice of a model x a model s or a model 3 performance for first place but second and third place also get a car just pretty sweet so where do we find out more about a raffle or purchase a ticket yet yeah so if you want to support us on our mission uh visit carbonraffle.org where you can get your tickets a pretty sweet website if I do say so myself. (laughs) (laughs) If you enjoyed our show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe on your favorite listening platform and follow us on Instagram at Cooler Earth. Stay tuned for next week's episode and thanks for listening. Stay cool.